Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. This is Idol Australians with James Madison and Osha Ginsberg. Exploring the bits you might have missed from Australian history and Australian culture. Welcome to Idol Australians, James Matheson. Uh, I just want to kick off the show uh, with something that's very pertinent considering last week's show. Ibis Watch 2021. Hmm. It's happening. I got sent this article by someone who listens. We talked about the adaptation of the Ibis and how smart they are and that they've gone beyond just being able to get into my son's baby bag and find exactly the compartment with the food in it, not go for the wet wipes. Ibis on the Gold Coast at Corumban- Are paying people's- Parking fines. Almost. They are the new- are putting coins in the meters. the new meter mates. Ibis on the Gold Coast, where there are control measures, and we spoke about these. Control measures is a nice way of saying killing them uh, <laughs> or making sure they don't breed. Ibis on the Gold Coast are so smart, they have figured out if they nest above the saltwater crocodile enclosure at Corumban Bird Sanctuary, the rangers can't get to their eggs. So they have surrounded themselves with a moat full of man-eating saltwater crocodiles. It's brilliant. Ibis. So clever, aren't they? Ibis are amazing. I wouldn't have even thought of that. To keep yourself, what, a moat of crocodiles? To keep yourself safe? No. I mean, if, if push came to shove, I might have come up with it, but no, not at, the, not at the drop of a hat. Absolutely not. Brilliant. What an exceptional animal. I'm sure we'll hear more from our loyal viewers about what other adaptations the Ibis have come up with. That's so clever. Isn't that Bloody legends. Isn't that smart? They figured out that, they, hang on, this guy keeps stealing my eggs. Where can I go where they're not going to steal my eggs? I know. They never go there. Have you seen uh, My Friend the Octopus on Netflix? Yeah, amazing. And the octopus is being hunted by the shark and it's like, well, I'm screwed here. Where is the one place that the shark won't be able to bite me? On the top of his head. So he rests on top of the head of the octopus. The Millennium Falcon maneuver. The bit that. Extraordinary. Lands on the Galactic Destroyer. Touche. Oh, it's great. I love it. I love a bit of feedback. Keep it coming. If you're enjoying the show, make sure you get in touch with us. We're always happy to uh, reminisce, refresh, go back. Look backwards. That's what most of the show's about, really, looking backwards. Yeah. And that's what we're going to do on this episode yeah. as well. Go back to 2004. What were you doing then, 2004? Well, that's the season two of Australian Idol, which I, I don't remember making. I remember Kalia was involved and you were there. That's it. A bit blurry for you. <laughs> That's it. So not uh, a lot of recollection, I would imagine, from that year. Well, as you would know, I um, I like sports. Get out. I'm into sports. You? Yeah, you, I'm, 
you wouldn't say I'm sports mad. Uh, I, well, some people might, but I would say I'm deeply fascinated with the more dramatic parts of sports at the highest level. I, look, when I went to your house when you were living over in Manly for the 2002 World Cup, uh, Australia uh, Tokyo World Cup, and you had the full leaderboard written on your wall and I believe there were different jerseys uh, for different teams that were playing and you had your work schedule marked out so you could watch as many games as possible and there seemed to be some sort of almost like life support system of beer and snacks in front of the television so you couldn't miss a moment. I might have got an inkling that this was your thing, Jimmy. (laughs) There has been times when I've taken the month off work to watch the Soccer World Cup. Like that's a very important When you travelled to the West Indies to follow the Australian, when you went to Germany to watch the World Cup, yeah, no one loves sport more than you, James Matheson, no one. No, mm. no, I, I think that might be exaggerating. There's, there's a lot of diehards out there, but I, I did get carried away at, at some point. Um, it, it's something that has always fascinated me, and not necessarily particular sports, but more the moments in sport where the drama is at the highest, where the stakes are at their pinnacle, where there is absolutely everything on the line. I, I love it. A Game 7 World Series baseball. I love an Olympics final. I love the last hour of a golf major on that Sunday afternoon slash Monday morning. You know, those are the sort of things that, like, I will take that high drama over any scripted television, any movie, any other sort of high or low art than you can imagine. That's really my jam. It's the ultimate reality TV. Like reality TV mm. is sport without the balls. It's this constructed, made-up thing, and, you know, we've talked about this before. Here's a bunch of people who are wearing a particular colour. There's another bunch of people who are wearing a different colour, and 100,000 people think it's really important that they take this oddly-shaped ball over that line 45, 50 metres away, and people will cry if it doesn't happen. Like, none of it matters, but we put so much effort <laughs> into it, you know? It's insane. It's, it's insane. That's That's a great paradox. It's like... None of this matters, but at the time, nothing else yeah. matters. That's what I'm always fascinated with. And also with athletes, you know, to perform at the highest level, like to complete a swimming race, the, the 100 metres freestyle, you have to be loose and limber and have your body free of all tension to the point where you've had to convince yourself that, you know, it's just another race, just another race, just another race. But concurrently, to get to that point, you have to have believed that nothing matters in the universe more than that race. And so this this constant interplay is going on between the two. It's, it's incredible. And, there, and there's so many little moments within sport like that which serve as microcosms on life in general, like these little snapshots of how we deal with adversity or how we prepare ourselves for a huge moment in our life or how we overcome massive failure. And that's sort of what I wanted to talk about a little bit in this episode. And that's why I asked you to think about 2004 because the 2004 summer games were in Greece. It was a historic moment. It's the first time Greece had really had the modern games. And I think we've got Ian Thorpe as a 
golden boy. We ended up winning 49 medals, which is a, a great tally. You should be proud. Aussie, 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 blah, blah, blah. Ugh. That sort of thing. But it's also the year where one of the biggest sporting stories in Australian history takes place. And it's not a story of glory and gold medals and standing on the dais or setting a record. It's a story of, of all things, women's rowing. Do you remember this? The Women's Eight, 2004? Anything ringing a bell yet? Oh, absolutely. I remember something went very wrong and in the race and then afterwards there was just weeks of public flogging of the people Wait, involved. you don't remember working with me for a year on one of Australia's highest-rating television shows, but you do remember a women's rowing race? I think I remember reading about it afterwards. The incident I'm talking about became known <laughs> as the Laydown Sally event. Oh, my God. We're talking women's eights. Yeah, of you know, course. Eight rowers and a coxswain. Australia has assembled a really impressive team of female rowers and they've reached the final and they're up against some of the best in the world, including the Romanians, double gold medal winning champions going for their third in a row. And the Australian team, they're off to a flyer. Halfway through, they're sort of keeping up. They're in second or third position. They've still got 1,000 metres to go. Maybe about 800 metres from the finish, something happens. Their pace begins to slow. One of the oars begins to be out of sync. It's not quite keeping up. And then soon after, the oar stops altogether. Someone has stopped rowing. And the team that was flying looking like they could possibly get a medal, slowly, slowly drift into last position and cross the line a long time behind everyone else. And there is an uproar in Australia, an absolute uproar when people find out what has happened. One of the women's oars, Sally Robbins, turns out, has found it to be too much. And if you've rowed before, which you have, right? Yeah, I did. I rode I rode in school and I rode I rode after school for a little while as well. She was six seat, I think. Right. You you would know, or anyone who rode at a high level would know, rowing is a sport that when it starts to hurt, when the pain builds up, when the lactic acid starts accumulating in your body, when the pace becomes so insane that the feeling is nigh on torturous, what's going through your body. And every fibre of your being is screaming, stop, this is too much, we've got to quit, we cannot continue. But you can't, or you don't, or you shouldn't. But that's not what happened here. And Sally did. She stopped. And... A nation sort of watched in horror. A nation that normally for three and three years and 51 weeks out of every four doesn't give a shit about rowing. Yeah. Suddenly was in uproar 
the Prime Minister chimed in. Some of the headlines were just awful with an O-R, O-A-R. Take the rest of the day off, um, Colin. <laughs> lay down Sally. Oh, my God. It's eight, mate. Pull your weight. These are the sort of headlines you saw over and over again. People were talking about it by the water cooler in pubs. People had never spoken about rowing in their life. People didn't even realise that women's rowing existed. Suddenly you're experts. Mm, overnight. For a big part of that initial outrage, Sally was painted as the villain. And then more information came out that this had happened before in big races. And then she became the villain. And then more came out about how her teammates had reacted and they were painted as the villain. And so I just wanted to dig deep and sort of explore that on this episode. Not necessarily what happened on the day, but look at how much of our obsession with sport, the pedestals we put these athletes on, and our idolisation of Olympians plays in the idea that we don't see them as people anymore. And the fact that we, we, we see part of our identity intermeshed with this arbitrary medal tally and how insane that is. Almost like when we watch these athletes, they owe us something. Almost like they are almost our employees. You know, they'd, So these are people probably with day jobs or people with who are putting careers on hold to do this. And, but for some reason, if people got as mad about this as a plumber that didn't finish a renovator, a reno job, you know, <laughs> people got furious, absolutely furious at these people as if they'd personally wounded them. People had just spent four years of their lives giving their time, their life, their energy, their blood, their sweat and tears for this moment. And it is understandable that emotions were running really hot. But the way the press honed in on what was said to use against a lot of these women, regardless of what happened, was just grotesque. Have you ever had a, a really outrageous fight with your partner? Oh, my God. Like where they're screaming. Who hasn't? And what's happening in that moment? You're emotional. You're very... Highly my emotional. lizard brain is controlling my mouth. My ability to think mm. rationally and say things that I don't actually truly mean in the cold light of day is gone. And imagine if a newspaper or a reporter or a journalist or a cameraman or a commentator focused in on you screaming at your partner because you are angry, upset, tired, emotional, overwhelmed, and use that as a snapshot of, who you are, how you expressed, how you felt about things. Yeah, completely unfair. It was a ravenous feeding frenzy. The public just kept throwing it in day after day. The headlines came out. Oh, that's right. There was that famous photo on that super long lens. There's a photograph of an athlete laying down in a boat and the people around her, their faces are clearly in a great amount of distress. It's incredible in itself and it really captures... As you're saying, this microcosm that then gets exploded into this endless kind of loop of of anger and how dare they and tell me more how about how about I'm, I don't like them. On top of that, this story that we get told as Australians that you never let down your mates. Oh yeah, 
this constant narrative that you, if you are a good Australian, you are there for your mates, no matter what. I don't want to hear excuses. I don't want to understand context. I don't want to understand. I, they don't want to know any extenuating circumstances, you know. I just want to, I want to stick to that story because that is what makes me Australian. What? nonsense what absolute nonsense but we get fed that we've grown on that that's part of our culture it's part of our identity and when something strikes against that we have this emotional reaction so that's what the show is about and i got some special guests to talk about it guests sir (laughs) we have two people yes there's two people well i i thought first up we you know delve in deep and talk to someone who knows more about this than probably anyone else in the country. He's written multiple articles on it, a TV special, and he's written a book about it. 37 years of sports reporting in this country. Absolute legend in his field. Welcome to the show, Peter Wilkins. Peter, thanks for joining us. <laughs> what was it about this story that compelled you to write a actual book on the events? Uh, briefly... I did a story, I went to a function and I met a few of the rowers and I thought these are impressive people. So I got to know them. We did a story for the 7.30 report, it was, as it was then called. It was just a, a very real sort of preview to the Olympics with um, a, an underrated eight or crew and yet filled with characters, filled with very determined people. And so we did the story, got to know them, and then when it went down, when it went badly, not that I got any clue, so it was very poor journalism that I didn't get any clue about uh, Sally Robbins' previous form. When it went down, I got the call very soon after the race from one of the crew members, it had happened before, and that opened up a Pandora's box, and I sort of felt a little bit of a responsibility in knowing them and having their trust to uh, to expand on a story, given that the crew were alienated, they were treated like lepers, as was Sally, and that was the the sad part about the whole story is that both sides uh, were at various times put on the chopping block, basically, of public opinion. Can you think back and sort of paint a picture for us what the reaction was like in the Australian press in the days after that race? Well, it was so polarising. Initially, uh, a lot of people came out, uh, particularly in the media and some of the tabloid media, heavily criticising Sally Robbins for basically laying down in the race in a team, you don't give up, you don't quit. It was a very harsh spotlight on the one crew member based on the outburst from the crew in the glare of publicity due to previous form they were suspicious that it might happen again in the race, and it did. There were many previous examples, many of them documented, of Sally lying down in the race. So in the aftermath, Sally was virtually uh, castigated for lying down, and then there was a swing. People then looked at the crew and thought their behaviour was outrageous, and so their personalities were, were shredded, if you like, because of comments made in the aftermath of the race, threats, Sally said that someone threatened to throw her out of the boat. No one really owned up to that, but 
there were various comments, there was abuse hurled at her in the boat. So you had on one side the media going hard against uh, Sally Robbins and then all of a sudden many of them realised or other sections of the media realised that, hey, it was just a race, it was an Olympic race and yet the spotlight on Sally for failure was far too extreme from the crew and then the crew were alienated and ostracised. And so there were several sides of it and we haven't even arrived at the, the AOC and their sort of failure to manipulate that, that scene, the media department, and then defending Sally and probably defending Sally too greatly at the risk or at the expense of the, the crew's reputations. And they were then really vilified for for being uh, the, the hate eight. What was it about Australia that... We were just so thirsty for this story. Why did we as a nation just bay for blood and buy any paper or watch any story that came to spear these people in front of our eyes? Why did everyone soak it up? Because it was just a great story. It was a failure on many levels. And um, Australia as a sporting nation, they don't book failure and the many levels of the failure, they failed in the selection process in that they kept selecting Sally Robbins when she did have form in previously uh, running out of steam or mentally not making it to the end of the race. So the crew had this burbling away inside of them. And once the public became aware that Sally had had previous form, once they became aware that the crew had really acted <laughs> somewhat nastily, uh, but many people forgave them based on the on the history of Sally Robbins. Why did we uh, attack it? Because on every level it was just a failure. The AOC, uh, they wanted to wear brush it from history. The parents, they were at each other's throats as well. Uh, the coach, he was uh, ostracised completely shortly thereafter. And, and so here we have this multi-layered feast of disappointment it's hard not to lap it up. How much do you think the stories we get told about who we are as Australians, the language around the culture of mateship plays into our fascination and also our our visceral response around this? Like, you've got to be there for your mates. You never let your mates down. Never give up your mates. You're always there, you know, the Anzac spirit. These are stories we are told over and over again from a very young age in this country, not just that friendship and mateship is important, but also it is intrinsically linked to who you are as a member of this country, as an Australian. Do you think that story that's embedded in us plays a big role here? Absolutely. And it's on both sides of the ledger here. I mentioned polarising. That's exactly what this uh, particular episode did. You mentioned that uh, that spirit of mateship. That's what did get Sally to the line, the mateship from the crew when they felt that what she could offer, and the coach as well, what she could offer the crew for the first 1,800 metres of the race uh, could possibly get them home, get them into metal calculations. So they looked after her. They were putting little notices on the back of the roller in front of Sally saying it's just a Canning River race, keep going. So they were her mates. 
all of them. But when it went pear-shaped, uh, the, all they wanted to do really was for Sally to sort of own up. So it's a two-way street here. Yes, that mateship goes, goes deep. <laughs> On the other side of it, that intrinsic part of mateship, the crew wanted her to own up to uh, previous failures, disappointments, and perhaps to say maybe she shouldn't have been in the crew. And so it was a two-way street, but it, you're right on the, on the pulse there. How do you think we as a country deal with not just the idolisation of sporting stars, but when they, in inverted commas, let us down, do we hold them to too high a standard a lot of the times, do you think? Oh, absolutely. And uh, in a sense, you're opening an old wound for me too because, to be quite honest with you, it was one of the most painful things I've ever done to write the book, to, to make the calls, to, uh, to unravel all that disappointment. I, I can't name the names, but I spoke to a couple of people who couldn't be interviewed for the book or they were interviewed and then they retracted it. Uh, some of them were on the, the cusp of a psychological breakdown because of the, of the trauma they'd experienced of the spotlight and, and what happened thereafter. And so that's why it was painful for me because in the, I, I felt a sort of guilt about writing writing a story and I, and I tried not to be too harsh on Sally. It was more uh, representative of uh, the rest of the crew and how they were feeling and what happened. Yet the spotlight on Sally really uh, sits still uh, unfairly. She tried to qualify for the next Olympics. Uh, people refused to row with her again. The the crew, the all the other members of the crew, the coach, they were going to Olympic functions and not even mentioned. They were airbrushed out of it. And I think this is really uh, the tragedy of this event and others like it, that failure isn't brooked. And sports people, they're you and I, really, they're, they're normal people who ascend to greatness, sometimes not of their own liking necessarily. And when they get there and they fail, the spotlight can be extremely harsh and far too harsh. And it's another learning curve as a nation that we really have to deal with. And we never really dealt with the, the 2004 uh, crew. And looking back, uh, I've had intermittent contact, but not really in the last three or four years with any of the crew. Uh, Sally Robbins naturally uh, went her own way and has been uh, fairly quiet. And one of the saddest postscripts to, uh, to that event was the only rower that uh, went on with it at the highest level and won a silver medal at the next Games was Sarah Tate Knee Althwaite, who sadly and tragically died at 33 years of age from cervical cancer just a, a few years ago. Oh, I'm sorry, sorry to hear that. That's a- you know, Pete, some of the most memorable moments in my life, good or bad, have occurred at sporting events. And those moments don't happen without an insane rabid fan base there at the time cheering them on, going berserk. But do we sometimes, as sports fans, care too much? Yes, at times. Can you temper that? But you can't always temper it. It just uh, it has to be a release. I mean, uh, that's the double-edged sword too. You want to care. You want it to be in the heart and soul. It, you know, it was both a... Uh, 
an attribute and a failing in if I was being introspective as a, as a sports commentator because I, I was too emotional, too excited, too pitched into the game where, and quite often couldn't, you know, necessarily sit back and, and give the... Uh, you know, a sort of more placid commentary, and so it's hard for me to to criticise uh, people who sport is their life. Of course, there's a line, and we fall over the wrong side sometimes. Honestly, Jim, if the two of you guys just want to start your own podcast, I reckon I reckon it's there. <laughs> I reckon it's just a Q and A where you like just like Corona Cast, like ten minutes a day. You go, hey Peter, remember. 1986, Manly. Oh, yes. Oh, my God. And the two of you just go for 20 minutes. And like the two of you, you're like the ESPN, you know, greatest hits, but podcast format. You should totally make it. Be brilliant. No one wants to hear that. (laughs) No one wants to hear that. I just love that it's two people who've never met personally. And that's what sport does, you know. It allows people who've never met something to talk about, which is something they always lamented that Melbourne had that the rest of the country didn't, you could talk about the footy on the weekend with someone on a tram because you can be sure Mm -hmm. that everyone follows AFL in Melbourne. In Sydney or Brisbane, you can't be sure that everyone follows league or soccer or whatever or cricket. But in Melbourne, you can have that and it gives people who otherwise don't know each other a way to connect. And that's it was just a joy watching the two of you riff on golf. It was brilliant. Pete filled us in on a lot of the context, a lot of the drama, a lot of the um, fallout after the race. But- to tell us exactly what happened in the race, who better than someone who was actually on the boat Get out. itself? You got someone, because a lot of these people went to ground. A lot of these people, it was so, as we just heard from Peter, a lot of these people didn't really want to talk about it ever again. Yeah, and understandably so. You know, it was such a fierce backlash and such, they were thrown to the walls, mm. most of these women, and they should have been better protected. But joining us right now on the show, someone who was actually on the boat at the time in 2004, the coxswain on the day, Katie Folks. Katie, thanks for coming on the show. You're welcome. Talk to us a little bit about a coxswain. Now, why does a boat need a coxswain? So the role of a coxswain, or often often shortened as cox, is you're basically the coach in the boat. So anytime you, I mean, you do things like steer and you have the race plan, but you're ultimately there to make the boat go faster. The cox is the only person facing forward. The cox is the only person that can see how the race is going. If you're rowing, and particularly if you're on, say, if you're on the sweep well, or and that's say, if you're rowing, you're always coming at one side of the boat but the rest of the field is on the other side of the boat, you can't really see where you are. So the the cox is also in charge of letting you know where you are, how you're going, when to push, when to conserve. And all those things are very strategic and tactical because you can really only hit the turbo button once, can't you, Katie? Well, it depends how fit and strong you are, really. But, <laughs> um, but yeah, absolutely played a role in that in that strategic and, and responsive, that tactical component to racing, which is the really, that's the really fun stuff. What do you remember about that day in 2004? About, what do you remember about the lead up to the actual race? What was the, the sentiment like before you guys got in the water? You know, it's interesting, like even as you ask that, I can, you can probably hear it in my voice, I can, I can already feel my heart rate increasing as we're talking about it. Um, if I, if I summarise, it was a real mix between confidence because we were a fast crew. 
it might sound strange, but on one hand, I had absolute trust in my crewmates and absolute faith in them. You know, in the lead up into that particular race and various um, regattas or races that we were in beforehand, we'd had some issues, you know, there'd been some issues with someone backing off a bit in a race. And so it was a, it was a pronounced issue coming in. In hindsight, you know, it would be so easy to say, well, that should have been our primary focus, but we were nine, nine people in the boat and we all went in with areas that we needed to focus on to make sure that we were covering those components off. You know, we had people with niggling injuries and people got that more nervous than others and all of those components. So it wasn't necessarily the main thing on my mind by any means. When the race kicks off and you're in the, mm-hmm. the early first couple of hundred metres, you've got a fairly good idea. You can tell. You can't see everyone in the crew, but you can see the oars from where you're sitting. You've got a fairly good idea of how everyone's feeling, judging by how quickly they're feathering their oars, how the oars are coming up out of the water. You can see pretty clearly what's going on. Was How did you feel in the early part of the race as you look across the other crews and you look at your crew? What were you thinking? We were on fire. We'd gone into that race knowing that we were one of the slower crews out of the starting blocks. And we also knew that we were one of the fastest crews in the second half of the race. So we went into that race going, we've just got to get out of the starting blocks with the pack. And we had one of the best first quarters of a race that we'd had all season. And it was, I can still remember the feeling. There was just, there was so much energy and a really positive it felt confident it was yeah some of the best rowing I've experienced at what moment do you realize something's gone wrong in some ways I can't remember some detail and in other ways I can remember specific strokes in a race you there was a point I'm going to say it was before the halfway mark where you know, I guess in the role of a cox, you not only do you rely on your eyes, but it's a boat feel. So you really get a sense, you know, in and bear with me for a second while I digress, but even in training, I could feel when someone's elbow or little finger was a little bit out. So you really get that sense. So in the race um, before the halfway mark, there was a very obvious this point for those of us that were in the boat that the power had significantly reduced in um, that particular seat and you know I had plans in place like I'd spent you know years leading into this I had backup plans for every scenario I could possibly think of and given a history this was a scenario that I needed backup plans for and so in some ways I remember, you know, my guts sort of turning, but then you, you, you just go into what you've practised. What's the plan I have in place for this particular scenario? So I started executing that plan, which was around calling people around Sally to really inject that, that team spirit and that support. And it didn't work. Um, yeah, and and then I, I don't remember how quickly the next period of time occurred. Um, I do know that for a long, long time in the race, we kept boat speed with other crews despite power reducing significantly in one seat, which is just amazing in itself. 
Um, the part that I never, ever anticipated was um, when Sally actually stopped rowing and then as a result of that, that impacted the people around in their ability to row as well. It, that was just an absolute blur. You didn't even know really what was going on, whether there'd been a, a breakage or someone was unwell or, yeah, just absolute blur. You know, I really wanted to do this not to dredge up anything that was negative for anyone, but more to look at our obsession as a nation with sports and with the Olympics in particular. Japan is on the horizon and people are tossing and turning. We shouldn't send athletes. It's unsafe. No, we've got to send them. They've trained all their lives. You know, there is this insane hyper-focus that we have as a country around the olympics and the big thing out of this was the reaction back home when it happened some of the stuff was very intense and vitriolic towards sally and then that sort of turned on the crew and so the lines of who was the victim and who was the villain in this was got so muddy and murky and for the first time in Australian history, people were talking about women's rowing at pubs, you know. Where, where do you see, like, Australia's fascination with sporting stars as sort of these infallible idols in terms of how we viewed what happened as a country? Yeah. Oh, goodness. I, in some ways, I don't know if I'm the best person to answer that because I've kind of avoided the media since, so I can't even think about stories of other um, sporting stars in the media. But what I can say is, you know, from our, well, again, I'll speak from my perspective, we didn't see ourselves as sporting stars. We were a group of people, great mates, great teammates, who had trained together for so long and were racing a really big race, a really important race, but it was another race. And so when the media did blow up, A, I think we were hidden away from it quite a bit, but you still saw snippets. And there's almost this story playing through your mind of why does everyone care? Like it's just, it's just us. It's really important to us. Like that race is so important to us and our families, but... I'm sure no one back home really cares. So it was almost later that you got a bit of a sense of how much media attention was on us. That said, it also meant that we were on the back foot for a number of things where, you know, media, journalists, etc. somehow were getting the hold of our mobile phone numbers and, dare I say, kind of tricking some of the younger girls in the crew to talking. And, you know, I now look back and go, well, of course they were. It's their job. Um, but at the time it was we were so naive to so much of that. The way it was handled in, in the press, as Jimmy was saying, two weeks before this, a large population in Australia probably didn't know that we were even sending female crews, let alone an eight to Athens or that we qualified or we even got a boat all the way over there. Like people probably wouldn't have any idea about that. Suddenly everyone is mortally offended that this happened while someone was wearing green and gold. Yeah. What are your thoughts now looking back from where we are here in 2021? What are your thoughts about how this was handled or how this would have been handled if it was the men's eight mm. versus the women's eight? Yeah, look, that's a really good question. And 
I think when I when I respond to this, I'm also thinking about you know there were certain things back then, and I'll fright, I'll, I'll I'll say up front now I'm now a mum of two young girls, and so there were certain things that I maybe tolerated as a female in sport because it's just the way it was that nowadays I would not tolerate because it's my girls growing up in this world, you know. So I don't know whether it would be different, of course. However, I would suspect that there were certainly feelings when we were in the Olympic Village where I had to escalate what was going on to the top of the food chain. It just so happened that I had their mobile number And I felt that there were people along the way that were brushing me off a little bit when I'm saying that this is escalating fast. The media has got the girls' numbers. This is, you know, my gut is telling me this is is not good. (laughs) Um, And I felt brushed off. I also suspect that members of a men's eight wouldn't go out with their mates back in Australia to a pub or something and get cornered by groups of males mm-hmm. who would be saying things like, why are you so mean to the hot girl in your crew? And, do you know, those sorts of things where you just didn't even know how to respond. And I'd often say, look, I'm more than happy to share you the long, boring story of the great team that we had and the relationships that we have, but it's not as dramatic as you think and it's not about who looks good and who doesn't. So, you know, I'd suspect that none of that stuff would go on. I think um, the other thing that was really interesting to me, and I can only, you know, it's only me now learning this, is I don't know how well even I handled this kind of, and I don't know if this would be different for males, but again, I suspect it might have been, this idea that I could care really deeply about a teammate and at the same time feel really let down and maybe even angry. I don't know. I mean, goodness, I was in my late 20s and I don't think I'd ever learned that you can hold all of this range of emotions at the same time, which is kind of weird in itself. Yet when I have seen male sporting scenarios play out, it seems, I could, I, you know, I might be really wrong here, but it seems okay to push each other around on the AFL field and be great mates afterwards, whereas... I don't know. I don't know if that wasn't as accepted or whether we or I just hadn't necessarily learned that yet. Now, you're these days uh, an executive coach and also your your speciality is, is also resilience. What did you learn about resilience and what do you teach other people about resilience that, that maybe is a surprise to them? Well, I'm really fortunate, so I've been doing some research into it, so I'm a bit of a, a, bit of a nerd. Um, I like evidence when it comes to things rather than just Katie's view of the world. But one of the things I really struggled with post-Athens was this idea of, like, there being a victim, whether it was us, whether it was Sally. You know, at one point I think fingers were pointed at our coach and I really struggled with that. You know, so many things we point fingers at someone when often it's actually um, more of a systemic issue. So if we think about, you know, in a workplace, so-and-so is underperforming and they get bounced from team to team because no one wants to deal with them and then we still blame that person but ultimately an organisation or a 40 team or whatever has kept them on. So that's one of the things that I'll really 
move, try and move the perspective away from pointing fingers and allocating blame to that more systemic view. The other thing that's really coming up in, in the research that, that I've been lucky to do is, again, resilience is often talked about as this really individual quality. You know, some of this, some of the stuff that's coming up at the moment is showing it's it's partly an individual quality, but it's also about someone's access to resources to meet the challenges at hand. And something like COVID's shown us that that's, you know, it's really obvious we're not resilient to COVID without a vaccine or with you know without something outside of us doesn't make us any weaker or less resilient so that's the short version that's that's about as wise as i'm the most wise words i'm going to hear today <laughs> you know i used to think differently about the things that had happened in my life that didn't turn out so well like the things that i wish i'd done differently or events that had occurred that i'd been responsible for that i would wish I had the chance to go back in time and I would do them differently. But as I've gotten older, that sentiment has changed and I'm very much hyper aware that I am who I am because of the things that have happened to me, good or bad, and I would not change any of the the not-so-great things that I've done or the terrible things that have happened in my life because the the growth that has occurred has been necessary and enabled me to be the person I am right now. Do you ever wish things had been different? Do you ever sort of daydream and think, oh, if only this had happened or that had happened? Or are you now at a very different place? I'm at a different place. And in fact, for many years, I really struggled. Like I I tried to work out what I should have done differently. So, you know, I was just saying, don't blame the person. I kept looking at myself what role did I play in this? What conversations should I have had differently? Who should I have brought in? And I really, I'm sure like many others, gave myself a hard time about what should I have done? And with most things in life, when I've screwed up, I've been able to work out <laughs> some, some different scenarios and I never could. And I still can't with this particular scenario. I don't know what the right answer was because I don't think there was one. And that was really difficult and still is at times really difficult to get my head around because we like that idea, don't we? We do A, we add it to B and we get C. Feels nice. So a couple of things. One, absolutely coming to terms with that my life is not always controllable is hard but also good for me and makes me better at the work I do. But the one thing I will say is that I also let some of those kind of stories of the team, I took some of them on and I think in some ways I've let that hold me back on occasions. And so that's my challenge now. No one else is telling me those stories anymore. It's me taking them and, and making them my own. That's the challenge, like learning from it but also shaking it off enough to accept and step forward regardless. I know it wasn't um, easy to talk about and you probably thought, oh, God, why am I doing this? But it meant a lot to us and I think we got some really beautiful perspective on on something that happened a long time ago. Um, so thank you. Thank you so much. It's really generous of you. Really, really appreciate your time. No, no problem. Thanks.
Tim, you know, we, we heard Peter Wilkins earlier describe the absolute maelstrom and the, this meat grinder that these these women were put through in the public eye and then the fallout of that and people just, this sport that they loved, that they committed their lives to, stopped being a thing in their lives. And yet to hear the way Katie reflected on it, the the wisdom and the the learning and the growth that she, not saying that, you know, it it was a great thing, but what she was able to do with that. If I had a tenth of what she's been able to do with that, I would be elated. Yeah. It's not what happens to you in life. It's what you do with what happens to you in life in many ways, isn't it? Yeah. And I, I really am so honoured that she felt comfortable sharing with us. Yeah. We don't want to think that we have conditions around giving people a fair go, but by golly, we do. We really do. And we didn't give anybody their fair go. I mean, I'm like, when I think about that story now, and, you know, obviously this last kind of hour that we've spent talking about this, all I want to know is like, Jesus, is she all right? Like, is she, what, what, what was going on for her in her head that that happened to her? Was she getting the right support? Was she getting what she needed? People are so quick to go make their own judgment about why she did it, but clearly there's something else going on. If you get to that level in sport and you have that kind of catastrophic diversion from the plan, is what I'll call it, something else is going on. Something significant is going on that surely at that level of the game, there are people in support should be around you whether that's management or coaching or sports psychologists or whatever, to help you with that because the risks of you being in that high-pressure situation. I'm just, I'm just astonished that people made it out okay, you know. We're not what we do, you know. We're not, we're not what we do. We're not what we achieve. We're not our losses. We're not our failures. We're not our triumphs. That's, that's, that is not who we are. These are stories that we tell ourselves, the things that happen to us, but... We are greater than the sum of all those things. And my hope is that they all know that now and that what felt like the worst thing that could have ever happened to them is maybe something that has enabled them to, like Katie was saying, go somewhere deeper, find something greater. Thanks to Katie, though. What a legend for coming on the show. Much appreciated. And, of course, the legendary Peter Wilkins. And a massive thanks to uh, our producer, Bree Steele, who found Katie and talked to Katie and made Katie feel comfortable with coming on this podcast and talking about that incident for the first time since it happened, which is a really, really big deal. Big thanks to Daryl Misson, our audio producer. If you have uh, anything you want to email us, idleaustralians at gmail.com. Rate the show, subscribe to the show. The very best thing you can do is tell someone about the show. That's the best thing you can do for us. Oh, Mike Mills made the music. That's right, Toe Hider. Our theme song was made by Toe Hider, the incredible and powerful Toe Hider. Go follow him on Twitch. He's amazing. All right, Jimmy. As always. See you next week. Do we need a sign off? I don't know. Is it was that it? I don't know. As always, it was a bit lame, wasn't it? Till next time. No. Until next time, remember, you're the voice. <laughs> Try and understand it. <laughs> oh dear. It's gonna be over surely. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. 
Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50% to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.